Welcome to our sixth episode of the Goodwill Hunters Autumn Series, The NGO of the Future. COVID-19 is accelerating a number of pre-existing challenges faced by the NGO sector. This includes fundamental changes in the way that we work and even greater competition for key talent. Employees need to be more agile and flexible and NGO leaders need to be even better at guiding their team through growing uncertainty and disruption. In this episode, co-host Rachel Mason-Nunn and I speak with Lawrence Goldstone and Professor Christy Muir on the NGO workforce of the future. Lawrence is a partner at PwC Australia and leads the firm's Future of Work agenda. Lawrence is also chair of the board at Oz Harvest, Australia's largest food rescue organisation. Christy is the CEO of the Centre for Social Impact and a professor of social policy in the business school at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. As always, we hope you enjoy this episode. The world needs a vibrant civil society. International NGOs have been vocal advocates and trusted implementers for decades, but their very existence is under threat. In a rapidly changing world, how do we ensure their continuing impact and sustainability? My name is Rachel Mason Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters. This series is brought to you with support from Alinea Whitelam. As a certified B Corporation, Alinea Whitelam is at home in both the for-profit and the not-for-profit sectors, giving us a unique appreciation for the diversity of stakeholders that contribute to quality development. We're so glad you can join us for this important conversation on the future of the NGO this autumn. Christy and Lawrence, welcome to the podcast. Let's start with NGO leadership. Some time ago, I read a great monograph by Jim Collins called Good to Great and the Social Sectors. In it, Jim argues that the complex governance and diffused power structures that are common in NGOs often make leading them more difficult than in other sectors. Is a challenging job becoming even harder with COVID? Oh, good question, Paul. And um, hello, and thanks for having me. Let me acknowledge that I'm sitting on Darawal country and pay my respects to elders past, present, and of course, all of the current and emerging leaders. Uh, I think being an NGO leader is really tough. We know it's tough. We know it's tough in terms of all those things you contextually just laid out, but we know it's also tough um, even before COVID in general, we know that burnout rates of not-for-profit leaders are really high. We know that um, that, that not-for-profit leaders tend to have enormous roles with fewer resources in the corporate sector. We also know that they've been underfunded in terms of things like professional development. So they're trying to do a lot and um, be innovative without a whole lot of resources. And we know that the margins are really thin on the ground for most not-for-profits. And so the job was already tough before COVID. Since COVID, it became even tougher. So we've seen with COVID a whole lot of challenges for not-for-profits. It'll be no surprise to anyone. Service demands went up. Uh, a whole lot of revenue sources uh, all of a sudden were cut off. Think of events and things like that. We saw some revenue um, in some philanthropy sources go up and, and philanthropy really responded well. But actually, I think there was a whole lot of inequality around that funding. So you've generally seen higher demand, um, less funding, and 
a whole lot of other complex challenges like moving your whole workforce back home uh, or shifting your service environment. And we're also trying to address inequalities that are showing up in a global pandemic, a Black Lives Matter movement, uh, and, you know, a whole lot of other gender equality issues. It's tougher than ever. Christy, it's definitely a really tough time. And what's interesting is to hear that the Centre for Social Impact has recently been asked to develop a leadership program. Why now? Like, why is this the moment to invest in the CEOs of our NGOs? Well, interestingly, we were working on this before COVID hit. And so COVID has just made it the climate that we've seen, you know, and, and I, I guess there's also the, the climate disaster type pieces as well. We've seen bushfires and floods, et cetera, wrap around this issue. So all of those have exacerbated the importance of the role of non-profits or for-purpose organisations in terms of their roles in society. And, and it's almost like everything we touch uh, even if we don't notice it, is affected by charities. You know, the, the people that are caring for our kids and our older people that are caring for our animals, um, that are addressing all of these challenges around climate change, the inequalities, et cetera. And so we know that there's incredible need for our for-purpose organisations. We know those things around challenges in terms of underinvestment in leadership. We know there hasn't been a great culture of permission to actually spend money on things like professional development of our leaders. And often leaders, because of their good and kind hearts in the space, will go, actually, let me support and fund my staff as opposed to funding myself as the leader. And so we've been working with um, a whole bunch of philanthropic foundations, Vincent Family Fairfax Foundation, the two Myers, My Trust, My Foundation, and Paul Ramsey Foundation, as well as at the start, the Ian Potter Foundation around what would it take to actually build a sort of a global world-leading kind of leadership program that took all the best pieces from around the world, all of the research, and after we spoke to nonprofit leaders and board directors, thinking about what they needed, and let's design that. Um, and that, um, fast forward, we now have Social Impact Leadership Australia, SILA for short, that is kicking off in, in July and applications are about to close, so we're super excited. Lawrence, your day job is to lead PwC's Future of Work practice, but your other day job is as chair of Oz Harvest. And certainly Oz Harvest is one of those organisations that has seen demand for its services skyrocket due to the economic impact of COVID. The other really key leadership role in an NGO is the board and especially the chair. I'm interested in your reflections on the leadership qualities that NGO boards most need to display in a post-pandemic world. Yeah, quite a couple of different questions in there, in there Paul, and uh, looking forward to sort of sharing. And again, from my side, thanks for, for having me today as well. Um, so look, from a board perspective, I, I think diversity um, of thought and perspective um, is obviously key and we've been championing that and it's been a conversation that's been championed for a while. Um, but I think we're now really truly seeing the value of diverse boards and diverse perspectives playing into the support that they can give to organisations. And if I've seen anything and certainly I know it from my own organisation and um, the the closeness and the need to be agile and flexible and to really be in support of the organization through a year that we just come through has been paramount. And I think we've really seen the value back to the organization of having a board that is aligned to the needs of the organization and is in support of the executive and the leaders trying to be able to drive and thrive within that organization. And just to add a little bit onto Christie's point, and it sort of plays into the future work domain, I do believe this area around leadership 
is one of the most critical issues of the moment. I think it is one of the biggest challenges. And the challenge in the corporate sector, which is no different to the not-for-profit sector, is things have been turned on its head, but we expect leaders to still lead in a more complex environment with more agility, um, with more conviction, um, with employees looking for confidence and direction, but the game's changed. So we're expecting leaders to still be there for people. But how do you do that when you've got people who are visible, people who are working remote, you've got um, challenges around bias in the workplace, around preferencing those that you can see, you've got increased mental health and well-being challenges throughout your organization. And we're expecting leaders to be these octopuses of the organization with tentacles into all different areas to be responsive, to be caring, to be agile. They've also got their own needs that they need to look after. And I think the leader of the future is a real challenge and opportunity area to sort of step into. I think it's really interesting around how do you lead in this enormous complexity. One of my favourite books, and you guys are probably really familiar, is Berger and Johnson's How to Lead in, in Times of Complexity. And, you know, they say there's like three leadership habits that are really important. And I think these are really useful for boards, going back to your points around boards to think about as well. And and they're, they're really quite simple, but they're quite important. One, ask different questions. Two, see different perspectives. And three, see systems. And on those kind of three questions, I think, you know, it's actually nice to have something in all of this complexity of leadership. How do I stop and just go back to some of those, what are the three most simple habits that I can adopt as a leader? But agree, this is these are challenging times. And then on the governance front, I think the interesting thing that I would like to flip with the with boards and governance around the future of the particularly the the for-purpose workforce and the boards, is how do we get boards to switch their thinking? Now, board directors are trained up to be all about the fiduciary duties of their organisations, right, which which I call sort of level one governance. But actually what we really need not-for-profits or for-purpose organisations to do is to go, well, actually, how do we achieve the purpose for what we're here for? And, And worry less about, but they hold on to that first level of governance. And so... Um, a piece of a paper that I've been working on uh, with a professor from Harvard University, Kash Rengen and Shamal Das from Australia, we're looking at three levels of governance for boards in the future. Level one is all that stuff you'd expect, fiduciary things. Level two is mission performance, which nonprofits are really good at and board directors are usually really good at. But three is like your systems performance. Because if you are there to end poverty, if you are there to end homelessness, if you are there to, you know, save the children, Paul, uh, then actually, you know, how do you get boards to change their thinking beyond just that level one governance and exist for that purpose piece as opposed to the the organisation? Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you, Christy, and I think that goes to that diversity point that I was making before, but it's also permission and opportunity to be able to expand into the, as you were just described it, level three thinking. So if governance alone, and I, I, you know, I do believe that not-for-profit boards and the boards that thrive most within organizations and help them to support their mission are the ones that move more into mission, vision, and the sort of higher purpose around system-based thinking around how we're going to grow, how we're going to change, and how we're going to evolve, not just how do we manage um, under the realms of what we've got. And I think the makeup of boards, and that goes to the sort of diversity point of diversity of thought, diversity of background, having different representation and different people um, inputting in and able to ask different questions. Uh, We need to be embracing that. And I, I kind of wonder, I've been musing at the moment around what would it take to fundamentally reset 
boards and board governance in this country. And um, if anything, the last year has kind of shown what can be done with the right sets of conditions. So let's take some of the positives around what's happened with this condensing um, uh, uh, of different conditions kind of being compressed together over a period of time. We've been able to sort of move leaps and bounds. But I wonder in this slow evolution around boards and board members um, sort of once every sort of four or five years, how fast that evolutionary change will be to allow people to actually get into more of that mindset. And I've got this idea around pandemic style acceleration without the crisis um, around what are those sort of radical conditions to get people to think differently, to be able to completely radically rethink the structure of the organization of what it needs. And in many cases, that might need to be a complete rethink around um, the governance and the board structure of different um, not-for-profits and NGOs. I think these are really important issues, Lawrence. Throughout this podcast series, this question of whether NGO boards are sufficiently focused on the impact that an organisation has rather than the organisation itself has arisen a number of times. It's a challenge because in some ways it turns traditional corporate sector governance on its head. NGO boards have fiduciary responsibilities, but their primary responsibility should be to the organisation's mission and its impact. How do we encourage boards to be more impact-focused, more mission-orientated? I think there's a few things. One is how do we get them to actually think about those three levels of governance as being interconnected and then give them application frameworks, which is something we teach in Governance for Impact. Uh, and, and part of that is sort of like, so take the fiduciary example uh, of the level one piece. Actually, the Charities Act, if you have charity status, the Charities Act legally requires you to exist for public benefit. So even in that level one fiduciary duty of governance, there's a responsibility to say you need to govern for public public good, not just for your organisation. And I wonder how many boards of non-profits can hand on heart, put their hand up and say, we are primarily governing for public good, not for the organisation in and of itself. So I think that there's different sort of things we can do around that. And then I think there's an evolution piece that actually ties back around how do you actually have clarity of absolute purpose? So I think there's there's a key around that. And how do you take the time to do that system thinking in a really applied way? So what's the context we're even working with with our purpose? If the purpose is to end homelessness, who else has this goal? How do we seek the context? And 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 then how do we do the eventually get to strategy around the how and then how do we measure impact? All thinking about what is ethical and effective leadership look like wrapped around this. But on that diversity of thinking that you need to be able to achieve those kind of stepwise progression pieces, how much of this is about power and how much of this is about does that disruption need a flip in power structures? And what would it look like if all of a sudden every board had lived experience, whatever was most relevant for that on it? And how do you actually, you know, I mean, Lawrence, how do you attack that in, in your disruption thinking? Look, that's the um, that's really where the essence of it came from, Christy, which was kind of play the hypothesis around if we were to spill all boards and get them to reapply for their roles, how many of them will be made up with the same people and the same skills that, that they existed in today? Now, I don't mean that to be overtly controversial, but at the same time, I think that's kind of the key to this thinking, which is are they fit for purpose? of the organization and are they set to be able to help achieve the impact and outcome as well as the 
um, as you said before, the fiduciary responsibility and all the good governance sides. And maybe we've become too habitual in terms of, of you around what a board should be and what those roles look like. I mean, if you go to boards, I'd firstly question, you know, let's assume that we're not going to spill all boards across um, the landscape and get them to reapply for their roles. I'm not saying that's not a good idea, but let's just assume that's not going to have to start with. Um, Revolving kind of going, how many of them have a charter? Has that charter been reassessed back around the purpose around what the board exists for? Does it need a reset and a rethink around where it's at now? What are the skills required to be able to help the organization achieve its mission, its thinking, as well as the three levels of uh, that we've just sort of talked to, which is more than just the governance side, but to be able to think at the systemic level. Um, and do we have the right representation of our impact areas, of our of our recipients, of who we're there to serve, represented with lived experience, as you say, onto our board? And if we can sort of challenge those things, then maybe we can get that step change towards a different level of structure and representation that can help us to therefore um, drive and, and create really strong um, sustainable organisations thinking differently into the future. Can we move on to workforce issues? Before the pandemic, NGOs were already experiencing a range of critical capability shortages. But I'm interested in your reflections on a post-pandemic world. What are the key emerging skills and capabilities that the NGO of the future will need more of? What's going to be in even higher demand? Yeah, and Paul, I don't know if this is going to be that different to the corporate sector, right? I do think there's going to be a classic mirroring. Um, I think we're going to find that the digital literacy and the ability to understand more around the use of data and technology and be creative. So I think the additional role around thinking creatively around how do I use those assets is going to be highly in demand. I think it's one of the biggest challenges, however, into the NGO not-for-profit space just from a lack of availability of those resources. Uh, obviously, we, these things haven't changed over the years, right? Lower budgets as we sort of entered into this conversation, lower budgets, um, lower advancements in terms of technology, in terms of automation and the digital agenda. But yet that is absolutely going to be um, the future need and future growth for all of our um, NGOs and not-for-profits as they thrive and start to move into um, the next stages uh, of their digital adoption and their landscape. It's its absolutely going to be a key and critical skill um, into the NGO and not-for-profit space. How we do that and how we look around those sort of digital upskilling and needs, um, that's going to be a challenge. How do we create those um, skills within uh, the workforce and the environments? How do we start to um, be able to look for new ways to bring and, and to leverage data um, I think is going to be really key. I do think the change in normalised sort of uh, corporate workforces around the whole EVP and flexible work is no different to that that's faced within the NFP and NGO space. So I think the EVP around where I'm working, why I'm working and how I'm enabled to work is now going to be a new challenge that has to be faced by the sector because those same demands and expectations for those that can, because it's it's only in sort of more knowledge-based um, working uh, environments that that sort of flexible work has really had the most impact onto. But I think that's going to be a new challenge into the skills and workforce of the future within the sector. I have a question for you, 
question for both of you to, to follow that up because, Lawrence, it's interesting to hear you draw a comparison between the private sector and the NGO sector there. And the private sector is, is more synonymous with spending a lot more money comparatively on recruitment um, and also on professional development. And I wonder, what's your view on whether the NGO sector is investing enough on both the recruitment front and supporting the professional development of staff? Um uh, can I come back to the recruitment? I want to pick up something on the tech first because I think it's really important. So, Lawrence, I agree with the, the digital shift we've really seen a lot. You know, we've obviously, and everybody's seen it and felt it and noticed it. We surveyed just over 500 for-purpose organisations during COVID and um, we found that 80% of organisations said that they'd shifted in some way either their full workforce or some of their workforce to working from home remotely, which supports your kind of the digital shift and also that flexibility piece. So that's happened, we know, in a big way in the, the nonprofit sector as well as everywhere else. But the, they also told us that, that only 30% had the necessary systems and software for staff to work from home before um, COVID. And, and also Info Exchange's survey also during COVID found that less than half, less than one in two nonprofit staff were confident using IT. So we've got these, we've got these issues around resources. We've got these issues around, yes, the digital shift is here. We've got issues around how we actually make sure nonprofits have sufficient resources to actually put proper digital systems in place. And then we also have challenges on the, the service side because we know with the Digital Inclusion Index that we still have prevailing issues around digital inequality. And so while the world is moving in this way, whether you're a for-profit or a non-for-profit, how do we make sure that, that we on both sides of that equation, the people that might be delivering services or putting the supports in place, the workforce has the tools that it needs, but also that the other end, the recipients can actually also engage in that way. It's a real, it's a real resourcing challenge that the sector's facing. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I, I think there's echoed in, we ran a not-for-profit CEO survey um, last year. It's a part of an annual survey that gets run. We um, tended in the past to only run it across sort of global CEOs. And then in the last year, adapted it into the not-for-profit space. So I'm really glad that we're getting that perspective in. Um, and I think just echoing your points there, Christy, you know, 77% um, of not-for-profit CEOs see digital upskilling as a higher priority in terms of the context of where it's moving to. And those, but the challenge is how do you actually start to, which is the question, how do you start to build and close the gap around digital literacy into those skills? I'm certain that we're going to start to see that play into the recruitment space, as you asked, Rachel. I do think that as we look at the um, threat of recruitment opportunities. There's a there's a whole push at the moment around non-bias um, technology and software that plays into the recruitment process that allows you to um, really get the best opportunity to get the best people for roles. I think we're going to start to see some of that software be applied in across all sectors, including the NFP space. Um, I do think we're going to start to see, whereas I'm seeing it in Oz Harvest at the moment and certainly in conversations with other NFPs, the skills that they're looking when we're looking for new people has moved from, is moving more towards hard technical skills as a primacy alongside those kind of cultural personal attributes and sort of the softer skills. 
a big part of the development area and the gap in the digital divide, if I'm really honest, is, is the technical skills, but there's also those core enabling skills as absolute mandatories and must-haves within that. And if there's one gap in that area, I think we're going to start to see some of those harder skills around empathy and around collaboration and creative problem solving, some of those what were called soft skills, but actually really technical skills in their own right to, to sort of adapt become really key alongside those harder skills around technical applications, because we've got to do more with less. If that same adage is always going to be true about finding creative ways to use the skills that you've got, the technology that's available in a somehow underfunded environment, but expect greater outcomes and output with more impact, um, we're going to have to be creative around how we think about using those skills and how we apply them. On that collaboration front, Lawrence, I think that's a really important point around what skills people need. I think that going forward, one of the trends will be, you know, we we definitely need more um, coalition builders, you know, integrators. And back in 2010, a Productivity Commission report that reviewed kind of the the, the third sector um, brought up that as an issue. You know, we've got we've got well, on the one side we've got a challenge around competition and contestability, and on the other side, flip side, we need more joined up and integrated working. And this is a big issue for governments, not just the not for profit sector, and then the hybridity of the sectors that might be working in between that. But we need that. But irrespective of where you're sitting, we need people who can actually do some of that connecting integration merging work but importantly we also need someone to fund it and and you know the the productivity commission brought that up in 2010 we've done a review of 93 different um inquiries recommendations royal commissions over the last decade since and that is an issue that keeps coming up again and again and again around that importance of the skills to be able to join up to integrate to collaborate um, when appropriate you just touched on something that's really interesting I know Paul will also probably have a perspective on this, but it is the collaboration point and it is that opportunity to think differently around new partnerships, new alliances, new ways of working to be able to better deliver on impact. And it's maybe off topic for today. Um, so apologies for sort of taking us there, but I, it, I do think that is going to be one of the you know areas of opportunity, shall we call it, to rethink and reimagine um, how you deliver on the impact and the purpose of organizations by thinking broader than just your own organization. I think this last year has shown anything, it's shown the, the opportunity around partnerships and to collaborate and think differently. Now, whether that ends up moving into mergers and uh, opportunities for people to come closer together around different levels of service, fantastic because we have way too much duplication and way too many organizations duplicating their infrastructure and their services and support mechanism, which is only taking away limited funding from the end recipient and user. And imagine the impact that we could have if we reimagined our own kind of ecosystem. Maybe that's for a different day. Absolutely agree, Lawrence. Another of the challenges that your comments highlight is the way that we're going to be increasingly competing with the private sector for talent in accessing digital and data analytics skills. At Save the Children, I've had my last two heads of data and analytics poached by the corporate sector at nearly twice what I could pay for them. So how do NGOs access these really critical skills when we struggle to compete on salaries? Collaboration, perhaps with the corporate sector, is one way, but I think you're right, Lawrence, about mergers. It's an issue that's come up a number of times throughout this podcast series. And can we create platforms where a group of NGOs in one form or another share cutting-edge data and analytical capability? 
can we re-envisage what it means to be an NGO? I think just to sort of add on to that, you know, the first stage when you're coming out, I'm kind of doing a lot of work at the moment around horizons and horizon-based thinking um, with with organisations in this sort of future workspace. And uh, horizon one, which is very much the here and now, really plays around optimization. It's how do I make the best of the current environment? There's not a huge amount of horizon two and three thinking, which horizon two I'm kind of classifying almost as post-vaccine um, kind of um, efficacy whereby we start to get more normalised and people stop being a bit worried around the here and now. And Horizon 3 is the reimagination. It's more of that bold thinking around reimagining practices rather than just optimising them. Um, I, I think there's a real opportunity for Horizon 3 thinking within this, um, Paul, and I, I, I get quite excited about that idea around um opportunities for collectives to come together and pool resource around some of those um, bigger opportunities. Now, whether they end up being shared services that support particular segments of the NFP or NGO space, so be it. I think if it's an opportunity to be able to leverage access and talent. The other thing that I just want to make a play to is we've now got a reimagination and an opportunity to think broader about where our workforce sits and where it is, right? So if anything, the boundaries have come down. So now if we don't have the same expectations that I need my data analysts to be in Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane or Perth, wherever they happen to be close to head office, I've now got the opportunity to be able to um, access a whole different talent pool. And if I'm even broader, notwithstanding any of the legal or jurisdiction requirements, you know, in a three-hour time zone between Sydney and Perth, there's two billion people. You know, it depends on how you want to think about the workforce and the skills that you want to access. The not-for-profit NGO space has most often been quite closed um, around its boldness to think around where that opportunity exists. But this could be a real catalyst to be able to broaden that thinking. Can I challenge you on that point, Lawrence? I agree with you, and I think it's great that that the possibilities for recruitment have broadened and we can think really globally. However, one of the really appealing factors about working in an NGO has always been the organisational culture. NGOs are notorious for being more you know, more supportive, maybe less stressful, and maybe that's not at all true. And I think anyone that works for an NGO is probably listening and going, it's not less stressful. But nonetheless, they are synonymous with being, you know, a really positive, supportive workplace. So if our talent pool suddenly is global and we're not bringing people together in an office, how can you maintain a positive organisational culture? Yeah, and I'm not suggesting that we would go only to a sort of remote sort of global workforce, but it does open up other possibilities around how can I bring in different skill sets. But you're absolutely right. And this is the question of the day, right, which is how do I foster connection, uh, community, purpose, culture, um, if my people aren't in the same place at the same time? And let's just look at the stats because this isn't how many days in the office-based conversation. This is how do I foster human behavior to get the best performance out of my people and what's the right mix for that? And that right mix is going to be hybrid. It's going to be hybrid for NGOs in the same way as it's going to be hybrid for corporates. There are times that people need to work alone from wherever that be, whether it be in an office or whether it be remote. And there's times that people need to or want to be together to be able to pool their resources and talents and build community and culture and to be able to foster, you know, new ideas. And that only comes from being in the room at the same place in the same time. And it's finding that appropriate mix for the organization that you find yourself within. All I'm saying is I think the black or white version of that, which is the all remote or the all office, um, has kind of passed. And I don't think we're going to see a return to that, um, neither in the corporate space. Uh, this is on mass, right? Um, we know that over two thirds of people 
um, want to work hybrid and remote at some form, whether that's one, two, three days really depends um, on their own circumstance. But we know that they want to work in groups and they want to come in to be next to their communities and their people to be able to lead and to be able to work in together to be able to foster community. And we know within this space, as you rightly said, people want to and feel much more aligned to the purpose um, of organizations. And actually, there's an interesting cultural shift that's going to come with that, right? With millennials and Gen X as dominating the workforce over the next sort of five to 10 years. I think in the next five years, we're going to find two thirds of the workforce is effectively going to be in that sort of millennial space who are much more transient, much more purpose-driven, much more sort of flexible in thinking around where they spend their time and discernible around um, the type of opportunities they find themselves into. Maybe that in itself offers new opportunities. Maybe we need to broaden our thinking around what the workforce is for the NGO. Do we start to offer secondments or career breaks in NGOs rather than seeing the world is actually come and experience something completely different and spend a year or two because you're going to get a fast track of learning as anybody here that works in an NGO than you will in a corporate because you're going to be exposed to far more in terms of your agility of role. Uh, maybe that's an opportunity to bring different skills in. Um, thinking about the workforce, not just as, you know, we've got a big focus in this country at the moment around um, getting people through apprenticeship-based models and into skills of organizations. What about the sort of mature-aged workers? There's there's uh, companies out there, there's a fantastic company um, that's just starting up um, called Maturis, which is about getting mature age workers back into the workforce. Imagine the opportunity that that presents to get more of that um, community into this space to bring the wisdom of their experience and, their, and to actually help to shape some of those new talented workers coming through the pool and actually think differently about your workforce from the community that you sort of present into. So I just think there's different opportunities to rethink who the worker is in this sector. I, th I think the interesting thing about the shift in the workforce, it, it's really important and it's important from, it's important, Rachel, to your point about the culture of workplaces and the, and the real value that nonprofits have to offer and why people love working for them because they're so purpose-driven and it is about the purpose and the passion and the shared purpose and the shared passion and the values alignment that make them often some of the best workplaces to be in. And there is a promise of that often in the, the for-profit space and sometimes that promise isn't actually realised. And it's it's quite interesting because, uh, Lawrence, you spoke about millennials. And if you look at the, if you look at millennials in the workforce, I don't have the Australian stats, but in the US, the millennials make up about 35% of the workforce. And a Deloitte survey um, that was done of that workforce basically found that 63% of that group thought that the primary purpose of businesses should be around improving society not generating profit. And we're also seeing that with things like, you know, the results in the Edelman Trust Index. We're seeing, we're seeing actually the expectation that people are following purpose. We're seeing it in like, you know, Larry Fink's letters to the CEO since about 2019 that focus on it's got to be about purpose. I think the unique piece for nonprofits is that actually they already have the purpose piece and importantly they live it. And so it's, I think that's the, that's the key. And, and on, the, on the collaboration front, I think there is lots of opportunity around how you might share resources. But on that front, we also have to be super mindful around power. How do you share it? How do you give it up? So that it isn't the sense of, uh, you know, I remember when the nonprofit sector was sort of uh, 
in inverted commas, professionalizing itself a couple of decades ago, there was this notion of, oh, if only the nonprofits can learn from the business sector. And I think we've moved well beyond that now around how it can be um, there is a reciprocal learning across sectors and there certainly isn't three sectors anymore. The market looks very different than that. But still, I think we have to be so cognizant around those power issues in terms of mergers and acquisitions and how you actually enable people to hold on to that deep root in civil society while also put the resources in place that, that are needed to support it. And we've seen great examples of that, you know, Paul with um, Save the Children and Library for All, and there are some great examples where you can achieve those things. And I think similarly you could take those examples you gave, Lawrence, of of, you know, who the great tech data analytics people are and around how that might go. But but I think the three kind of messages I have around that are purpose, live it, power, share it or give it up, and, and humanity, value it. Because if we start to talk about people as resources or, you know, in, in that kind of way, I think we, we, we're in that danger of, you know, how do we not lose that sense of that humanity piece? We've covered so many topics and I, you know, like potentially a lot of this series, I imagine some of the NGOs listening are going, well, this is so much. Like, what do I do with this? Where do I start? There's a lot to consider. Um, so if there's one point that's been raised today that NGOs absolutely need to do in order to be sustainable and effective in the future, what is the one thing um, in regards to the, to the workforce that you'd like NGOs to know? Um, if it's to know, I think the I, I think the piece that we've covered um, and spoken a little bit about today is around the skilling, right? And so it goes to two sides of skilling: the the need for digital skilling and to think broader around the skills that you're bringing into your organisation. That goes to both the workforce, but also goes to the representation, as we said before, on on your boards. What are the skills required for us to be able to thrive into the future and be able to either um, evolve those skills, create pathways around those skills, recruit those skills, beg, still borrow those skills, however you need to bring them in. There's also two sides to those skills. One is the technical side, as we've sort of talked about before around um, the technical competencies in, in data or different technological advanced uh, sort of applications. Uh, the other is the software and enabling skills required to be able to create sustainable, thriving organizations. And that goes into those areas around um, collaboration and, and empathy and creative problem solving. So some of those, uh, being able to get that right diversity and right mix of skills, both throughout your organization and its workers, throughout the organization, its leaders, and throughout the organization in its board, really gives you that opportunity to then start to think differently about some of the really big questions that we need to stare into as an organization. I would probably summarise one point to think about around the leadership front, and, I, and I'm not talking about leadership with titles but actually what you do and leadership at any level. So whether it's at the, you know, the very front desk of an organisation as someone walks in through to what happens in a boardroom and how do leaders think about, you know, enacting the purpose for which the organisation exists as opposed to just thinking about the organisation. And I think that then opens people's minds and hearts around working differently, thinking about collaboration opportunities, thinking about who else is working in the space, thinking about how you and how and where you integrate and just starting to think differently. The other point that I think is really important on the skills front that I really want to emphasise is this isn't just uh, a non-profit 
problem, as in workforce reform is a really big issue that has been brought up again and again since the 2010 Productivity Commission and, and many decades before. And this isn't just about nonprofits being cognizant of what skills that they might need into the future. It's also about how we fund them. It's about making sure we address some of those really systemic issues around short-term contracts, tendering, contract issues, reporting requirements, how, how philanthropy might pay what it actually takes to, to deliver the direct and indirect costs of services for nonprofits. So I think what we need is that collective kind of piece around how do we think about workforce reform in terms of what it might mean internally to organisations, but also how do we think about it in the really bigger picture if we're all super serious about creating the kind of society that we want and need. That's a fantastic place to finish the podcast. We've covered a huge amount of ground today, but I think I'm most concerned about the NGO leader of the future being an octopus. We'll see how we go. Thank you so much, Christy. Thank you so much, Lawrence. It's been great having you both on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. I hope you really enjoyed this sixth episode in the Goodwill Hunters autumn series on the NGO of the future. Look out for our final episode in the series, examining the key themes covered and providing some helpful insights into how to steer organisational transformation in an NGO, starring Joe Kavanagh and David Crosby.